a quick word from our sponsor today. Where do I start? Help desk software, payment software, email marketing tools, CMS and blogging tools, SEO tools, deal management tracking, pipeline tracking. You do not need more tools to get more out of your business. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform is the ultimate business hack for all your customer-facing teams. You can create best-in-class campaigns and automate outreach with workflows that will generate more qualified leads for your business. HubSpot will also keep track of every prospect with category-leading pipeline management so you can close more deals. Finally, you can use powerful AI chatbots and develop a knowledge base to scale your support. HubSpot is built to deliver results, drive more revenue, and to help your business grow faster than you ever thought was possible. Try it for yourself today at HubSpot.com. Again, go check out HubSpot.com today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All the Hacks, a show about upgrading your life, money, and travel. I'm Chris Hutchins, and I'm excited to have you on my journey to find all the hacks. And today, we're talking jobs, careers, and everything in between with Catherine Minshew, founder and CEO of The Muse, a career platform that serves over 7 million people each month, and the co-author of the best-selling book, The New Rules of Work, the modern playbook for navigating your career. I am so excited to chat with her about finding and getting the right job, making networking suck a whole lot less, and how to build your personal brand online without needing to become a social media influencer. But before we jump in, I want to share two quick things. First, I would love your support in nominating all the hacks for a Plutus Award for the best new personal finance podcast. It will only take a couple seconds, and you can do it by going to allthehacks.com slash vote. Second, I'm going to be doing a listener mailbag episode soon. So if you have any questions for me, or you have any hacks to share with the thousands of All The Hacks listeners, please send an email to chris at allthehacks.com. All right, let's get to the interview. Catherine, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to join. We actually have had a bunch of people write in asking if we could do an episode on career, work, jobs, everything. So I'm really excited to do this. And I want to kick it off with just a a random question, which is, what do you think is the biggest misconception when it comes to navigating the modern workplace? Oh, the biggest misconception. I think a lot of people are so fixated on how do I get the job? How do I convince the company to choose me? that they forget to ask themselves, what do I want? And what type of company should I be picking? Because a job is not one size fits all, right? It is incredibly dependent, not only on your skills, strengths, experiences, but also your preferences, your needs, your values, and how those align with the kind of preferences, needs, values of the team that you work with, the organization that you work for. And I think sometimes, especially early career professionals, but but I see this at any age, people are so focused on getting picked, getting chosen, getting through the interview that they forget to really turn the question around. And how do you think people should figure that out? Like if you are not happy in your current job and you're not sure what you want to do next, 
obviously you could just start applying to random jobs, but is there a, a process or some <laughs> advice you give people that are unsure what they should do? Yes. Yes. And in fact, I don't recommend starting with applying to random jobs because I think that there's a step before that, a phase zero that sets you off on the right foot. And that is a process of self-discovery and self-exploration. Now, before you know, someone listening freaks out, this doesn't have to be weeks or months long. You could do it in a focused afternoon, although I do recommend taking a week or two if you have the time. And essentially, it's a process of looking at where you are, the experiences that you've had in the past, and trying to ascertain when have you been in flow state, which is, you know, as, as probably everyone listening knows, when just time seems to fly by and you're, you're totally locked in, you can start to think about when have you been happiest in your career? When have you felt most motivated and most engaged and productive at work? If you have the time, I really recommend asking friends, family, perhaps former colleagues who you don't worry uh, might be, <laughs> might be tipped off to the fact that you're thinking about a change, but asking them, you know, what do you see as my strengths? When do you see me light up professionally? And I think once you start to zero in on a couple of your values professionally, it can be much easier and more straightforward to organize a job search. And these aren't, these values aren't the same for everyone, right? So you might realize that you really value a stable work environment or someone might want quite the opposite. They might want a work environment where things are constantly changing and there's experimentation and things are very new and fresh. Some people might really value prestige or compensation. Other people might want maximum flexibility or creativity, or they may want to be deeply aligned with the mission of the organization that they work for. There are a lot of different things you can prioritize in your career, but you're not necessarily going to find a job or a company that is 10 out of 10 on every dimension in the world, but you can find one that's 10 out of 10 on the, you know, three to four values or dimensions that matter most to you. So I think that's the most powerful place to start, even though sometimes people can get impatient and they just want to dive in and jump in. Yeah, I've been in this situation before. And and if you get laid off, obviously, there's a different sense of urgency to what happens. But I noticed you didn't say, you know, pursue your passion, which is something I hear a lot of people often say when you're looking for what to do. How do you feel about that phrase? I just don't find it very helpful as a phrase, right? First of all, like, what is my passion? A lot of people don't know. And labeling something a passion can make the stakes feel incredibly high. Secondly, a lot of people are actually happier serving their passion if it is outside of work, but they pick a professional set of pursuits that complement it. So what do I mean by that? You might love to paint, but do you want to be a professional painter? Maybe. And if you do, absolutely, like go live your dreams. But for a lot of people that have a passion for painting or a passion for some sort of perhaps artistic endeavor, they are actually happier not putting all of the pressures of financially supporting themselves on that passion. They're happier thinking about a career that is motivating, that is exciting, but perhaps provides the financial stability or the flexibility. Again, I think live your passion is, you know, it's it's a fun phrase. It's a great catchphrase, but I just think it's a little bit overused because, you know, it doesn't necessarily provide signposts. Now, for some people, they're deeply passionate about making some sort of change in the world or a specific mission. And if you can align your career with the larger good you want to see in the world, that's incredibly motivating. And I think it's something that, again, if that matters to you deeply, you should absolutely strive to do. But I wouldn't necessarily say that always fits in the catchphrase of like, follow your passion. 
I think that sometimes it's helpful to just take a step back and and really think, you know, what what am I good at? What can I make a living at? What do I enjoy? Where's an intersection between those? And again, if you have uh, a passion, an artistic pursuit, a hobby, et cetera, I think it's really important and fair to say, do I want this to be my livelihood or do I want this to be a beautiful and important part of a larger life that includes a different professional component? And I think that both of those are really valid. And again, I just really encourage people to ask themselves the question and honor whatever answer comes up for them, not what answer you think culturally you should choose or what, you know, your friends say or what some influencer on Instagram told you to do. It's really like, what is the right answer for you specifically? Because each of us has such a different set of needs as well as hopes and dreams, you know, in our careers. Yeah. My brother-in-law loves golf and used to be a professional golfer briefly and realized that that changes the whole thing. When this thing that you loved doing as a you know hobby, as a way to spend time, as a way to enjoy time with friends, becomes your job, he started not loving golf as much as he had before, and immediately was like, "I need to find something else." And now he runs you know North American sales at App Dynamics, and like it's a totally different career, and is so happy that he's not a professional golfer, but still golfs all the time. <laughs> so I, I'm a big fan. You know, I'm. My day job is not pursuing, you know, all the all the hacks. It just happens to be what I do on my free time. So it doesn't have to be the same thing. I totally agree. If we go back in time for you, how does what you're doing now line up with your passion? How did you end up finding an entire career in, you know, this career? Yeah. So I do feel like I pursued my own winding eclectic career path by following a lot of the principles that are now part of what I talk about via the muse and via my book. So for me, when I started, and actually I'll go back, like way back to age 13, 14 year old Catherine, I uh, fell in love with that television show Alias that starred Jennifer Garner. If you or anybody listening remembers, it was this amazing show about like a double agent. And I decided really early on, I was going to be either a CIA agent or an ambassador. Like that was the plan. That was the goal. I did actually briefly think also about pursuing theater professionally. Theater was a big extracurricular passion of mine and I loved it. But, you know, when I did a few community theater productions or talked to people who were professionals in the field, to your point about your brother, like it, it didn't really feel like doing that professionally was going to be as fulfilling as doing it as a hobby or, you know, an activity that I deeply enjoyed. And so I focused in on, like, I'm going to be this secret agent or (laughs) this, you know, State Department official. And luckily, in 2007, I applied for and was accepted to work at a U.S. embassy in Nicosia, Cyprus, in the uh, regional security office. And let me tell you, I have some amazing stories from that time. It was a totally wild, fascinating experience. But I very quickly realized that the the sort of reality of life in the State Department and in government service in general, it, it didn't match this idea I had built up in my head, right, about what the career was actually like. And so even though I consider that time to be an incredible experience, I also came out of it with all of the angst of a 22-year-old <laughs> saying like, what do I want to do with my life if it's not this? And I then spent the next two or three years feeling somewhat lost. I worked at McKinsey & Company as a consultant for a few years. 
I moved to Kigali, Rwanda, and ran a vaccine introduction for a period of time, which, by the way, fascinating now that vaccines are in the news again. But I I was really trying these different careers, and I was also spending a lot of time on job boards. I was on Monster.com all the time. I was looking on different company career websites, trying to figure out what were the jobs that were even out there? What did that actually mean to do those jobs? Would I like that? And I became just personally fascinated by, first of all, how complex the career search is. I became really interested in how to assess what a company's culture and values are from the outside. What is the employee experience like? Because it's very different at very different companies. You know, a sales job or an engineering job or a marketing job is not a single interchangeable thing where it doesn't matter where you work. No, it actually matters very much where you work. And so I was really interested in how people make career decisions from the outside. And it frustrated me at the same time. When I was leaving McKinsey, I was getting recruited by some hedge funds, by big tech companies. And, you know, some of them were rolling out the red carpet with these very expensive recruiting dinners and all of this time they were investing one-on-one in me, trying to convince me to join their company. And then I would go online and look at other jobs. And it was this terrible transactional paper thin experience where they were just like, do you have these skills? Apply. Maybe we'll consider you. Like it was just terrible. And I thought there's got to be something between these two extremes. There should be an online platform that helps create a a digital red carpet experience that gives someone insight into the culture and values at a company, you know, and, and, and helps also guide and coach people as they go through the, the often fraught and challenging process of finding a job, figuring out what they want to do. And so the idea for The Muse was percolating for a long time before I actually started the business. But I really felt like I built it because I needed it and it didn't exist. Well, that's amazing. Uh, I I had like six follow-ups that came from that. Okay, Um, go. (laughs) one, One was you ended up having to go work at the State Department in order to figure out that you didn't want to do that. Knowing everything you know now, do you think there's something you could have done to figure out if that would have been a good fit without having to go do it? You know, I think if I had been able to sit down with people who worked at the State Department, what's called an informational interview, that might have given me the insight that I needed. Or even watching enough videos of people who were in that career path talking about a typical day in their life, what they did, how it worked. That's frankly some of the experience that I've tried to approximate with the Muse because not everyone has the opportunity to go work for an organization and then change their mind or go sit down one-on-one over coffee with someone who's in a particular career field. Obviously, I got a really deep front row seat to what the organization was like by working there, but I absolutely think that had I been a little bit savvier of a job searcher, I might have been able to recognize that beforehand without going all the way to Cyprus (laughs) to find out that it wasn't the end-all be-all for the rest of my career. So that brings up uh, an important part of this entire process that you dedicate, I think, an entire chapter to about networking with people. I'd love to just dig into how you think people could do a better job. I, I know that It can be daunting for some people, especially going into a new career, to find people both for the purpose of learning, for the purpose of having an in if you find a company you want. Are there things you think people should start with to try to build those skills and and be productive with networking? Yeah. So first of all, 
I don't know about you, but when I first started thinking about networking, (laughs) it almost had a bad rap to me, right? I imagine these guys in ill-fitting suits and briefcases, mechanically shaking hands and passing business cards back and forth in like a hotel lobby. And, And I think if you break that apart in your mind and you just say, okay, networking is about meeting new people, learning about them, getting to know them, and thinking about it as a long game of just investing in those around you, it really reframes networking for a lot of people. And I think that it also helps you understand what works for you. Some people really ace those big, giant networking events like conferences. Other people do really well by hosting their own smaller networking events, getting to know people in quieter or more small group settings. And I think that's all right. So when I think about, you know, tips for networking, I I often encourage people to, you know, understand your own preferences, what's going to make you most comfortable. Do you want to try going to bigger events? Do you want to, you know, invite four people that you know professionally and ask them to each invite two people and host some sort of smaller group. I've had people have great success organizing book clubs around professional related books and using that as a forum to meet people. So understand what works for you. I think it's also helpful to set a few goals for yourself. Is it that you want to attend one networking event a month or reach out to three contacts from your network every week to see how they're doing? Whatever the goals are, sometimes just writing them down can give you a clarity around what you're trying to accomplish. If you're going to in-person events, I always recommend, you know, dress comfortably. You want to focus on the people there, not your shoes or your outfit. It can be really great to bring what I term in the book a wingman or a wingwoman, which is someone else who's in your same professional space who you feel very comfortable with. You enjoy their company so that, you know, you may find that at the event, you spend a lot of time apart talking to different people. But you also know that if you want a kind of touchstone or you want to just recenter yourself in the middle of the event, you can go find them, join the conversation they're having and vice versa. I also think that, again, networking doesn't have to be this sort of large kind of faceless thing. You can focus at times on just you know, a smaller number of deeper connections. And informational interviews are a really helpful way to do that. And, you know, is it helpful if I talk a little bit about informational interviews for people who may not be as as familiar with the best practice there? Yeah, definitely. Whether it's researching investments, comparing performance, trying to read up on the news, or looking into a company's financial statements, it seems like there is an unlimited number of places to get your information, but my go-to site for all things investing is actually the same site I've been using for over a decade. It keeps getting better and better and also happens to be our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just getting started, Yahoo Finance has all the tools and data you need in one place. Well, actually two places because they also have a great mobile app. You'll get a holistic view of the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. It's probably why they've been trusted for over 25 years and by over 90 million users each month who are working towards their own financial success. So for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind so many great investors, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com, that's yahoofinance.com. I love helping you answer all the toughest questions about life, money, and so much more, but sometimes it's helpful to talk to other people in your situation, which actually gets harder as you build your wealth. 
So I want to introduce you to today's sponsor, Long Angle. Long Angle is a community of high net worth individuals with backgrounds in everything from technology, finance, medicine, to real estate, law, manufacturing, and more. I'm a member of Long Angle. I've loved being a part of the community, and I've even had one of the founders, Tad Fallows, join me on all the hacks in episode 87 to talk about alternative investments. Now, the majority of Long Angle members are first-generation wealth, young, highly successful individuals who join the community to share knowledge and learn from each other in a confidential, unbiased setting. On top of that, members also get access to some unique private market investment opportunities. Like I said, I'm a member and I've gotten so much value from the community because you're getting advice and feedback from people in a similar situation to you on everything from your investment portfolio to your children's education to finding a concierge doctor. So many of these conversations aren't happening anywhere else online. So if you have more than 2.2 million in investable assets, which is their minimum for membership, I encourage you to check out Long Angle and it's totally free to join. Just go to longangle.com to learn more, and if you choose to apply, be sure to let them know you heard about it here. Again, that's longangle.com. So what is an informational interview? First of all, it's sitting down, usually one-to-one, across the table or on a Zoom with someone who's in a career field or a role that you're interested in, and learning more what do they do in a typical day? What um, are the kind of best and worst things about their job? It's a really great way of exploring a career field, a company, a particular type of work before you dive in and fully commit. Frankly, it's what I wish I had done earlier in my career so that I would have known more about some of these different fields before I dove in. So there's a few tips that I find make informational interviews go much better. First of all, do your research ahead of time. Many informational interviews will start out with either you reaching out cold to someone, perhaps through your network, through your college or university's alumni network. You know, you might be introduced by a mutual friend, but you're reaching out to someone and asking for 15, 30 minutes, maybe an hour of their time to learn more about their career path and guide you on your own. And so I think it's really helpful to do a bit of research ahead of time, understand where they've come from, what are some of the key elements of or key turning points in their career so that you're not asking them questions that you could have answered with a Google search. Thinking about you know, making a good impression. This is someone who might be able to refer you for a job or an opportunity in the future. Someone that you may be able to help. So really being prompt, being respectful of their time is very helpful. I also love asking what I call dual questions or positive negative questions. So Sometimes one of the most helpful things you can learn from an informational interview is something like what sort of people would not be happy in a career field like yours or what are some of the challenges of working at, you know, company XYZ. But often if you ask a directly negative shaded question like that, sometimes people will be protective of where they work and so they may hesitate to give you an honest answer, which is why I like these dual questions. It's essentially asking a positive and a negative at the same time. So this might look like asking someone, I'd really love to understand more what it's actually like to work at company XYZ. What are some of your favorite things about working there? And what are some of the things that might be more challenging or frustrating for people? Or you could ask, you know, when I'm thinking about 
whether I want to build a career as a brand marketer or a data engineer or whatever the career field is, you know, what do you think are some of the things that are really most enjoyable and exciting to you about the field? And what are some of the things that are drawbacks or challenges that someone should be aware of? I think if you give people a chance to answer both the good and the bad, you tend to get much more honesty. And again, honesty is what you're going for because you are ultimately, usually in these conversations, trying to get the information that will help you decide if a particular career field or a particular company is going to be a good fit. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to realize that networking doesn't have to just be these big events with lots of people. And there's a lot of value that can come from this one-on-one. I'll share a couple of my tips because I really love the challenge of finding email addresses and finding connections to people. I feel like that's just a a game that I really enjoy. And so when I started thinking about how to do this kind of one-on-one networking, first I would go to LinkedIn and I would look at all my connections and then I would look at all their connections and I would just scroll through. And so before I would meet with someone, I would go in with a list. And sometimes I even printed it out, depending on how well I knew them. But I was like, here are the seven people that this person knows that could be a good fit for me to meet. And so every time I went to one of those meetings, I would go and know who could I potentially be you know, looking for an introduction for. And then I, I always have an idea of my network. So who are you looking to meet? And how could I add value back to you? That's when you know the person you're meeting with. When you don't, sometimes you need to find an email address. And so there are a bunch of browser extensions. I use one called Lucia, which basically like when you're on a LinkedIn profile, will show you an email. But the biggest trick I've found that, you know, for validating emails is if you just search in Google for an email with quotes, you'll get, but if it's not in quotes, it always fails. But if it's in quotes, you usually get back whether that email's out there. And I found emails in the strangest places. So you just kind of like guess someone's email address. You know, for you, I would try, you know, first name, last name, first letter, last name, all these different combinations. And I've seen things pop up where there's like a random PTA agenda for some, you know, school, but they're the coordinator. And so their email is on this agenda. And so when you're trying to find email addresses, there's a lot of ways to be creative. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I go a little bit intense sometimes because I want to make these events efficient. Uh, so if I go to an event, one thing that I, I find that most people don't know you can do, you can often email a conference and say, hey, do you have a list of the attendees? Yes. You don't need the email. Sometimes they just include the email addresses, which is like, you know, someone sent you a plate of gold. <laughs> uh, sometimes they don't. But I go through every conference or every event. I try to find all the attendees, figure out who's interesting. And sometimes I'll go one step further and I'll go to their LinkedIn profiles. I'll copy their photos and I'll put them in a notes doc on my phone. So when I'm like, okay, I'm going to go stand on the wall for a second, look through this and try to identify who are these people I'm trying to meet. Uh, And then I'll be like, there's Bill. And then I'm like, I'm like targeting. I want to go talk to Bill. And I walk up there. I I love this so much, by the way, because I think what you just gave is a mini masterclass on how to get the attention of people who are otherwise busy. And you're completely right that being in the same place at the same time is one of the best ways. I would say, you know, back when I used to attend a lot more conferences, my schedule was packed. But if someone said, hey, Catherine, I'm also going to be where you already are. Do you have 15 minutes during one of these breaks? I am probably about 30 times more likely to say yes than if it had just been a cold email asking for a phone call or something. Likewise, if you can find any other points of connection with that person through perhaps Googling them, (laughs) stalking them, it's such a great way to get on someone's radar. And I think that's brilliant. 
Yeah. So sometimes it can backfire. So when I was in college, I was applying for a job in New York and I was at home and I grew up like you did in, in Northern Virginia, right outside DC. And there was a company in New York and I really wanted to work at this company. And so I sent an email to the person that I'd been introduced to. And I said, Hey, I'm in New York this week. And I, you know, it's four hours away. I was like, would you be up for meeting up? And I thought, you know, if this person thinks I'm already there and I'm only there this week, there's a higher likelihood that they'd make the effort. And I remember getting an email at like 10 p.m. that was like, could you come in at six tomorrow morning or seven? To- it was some really early time. And so I literally took the 1 a.m. Amtrak up to New York, got in at like 3.45 in the morning, <laughs> went to a friend's house and took a shower and got all dressed up. I put my suit on and, and showed up. And, you know, only about six months later did I actually say, you know, I was actually not in New York at the time. And the person <laughs> thought it was funny, but People uh, love it the worked. hustle though, right? It really does. That's actually how I got the URL, themuse.com. The person who owned it was this amazing guy who lived in Washington, D.C., actually. And I, at the time, was in San Francisco, California, because I had just finished the uh, Y Combinator incubator program for the Muse. And similarly, I, I actually had gotten his email through some connection. I had been emailing him researching him, trying to get a meeting. And finally, I said, I'll be in DC this weekend. And somewhat similarly, he's like, great, how about Sunday morning at 10am? And it was a tight turnaround. But I was on, a, I think, a red eye that Saturday night. And I uh, made the meeting and, and ended up getting the URL and bringing him on as an advisor. So sometimes you just have to show up or pretend in this case that you are already there. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So two things that you mentioned in your book that I thought were really interesting, I want to make sure I I highlight. One was, in addition to these two-sided questions, when you're networking, you mentioned asking open-ended questions. And I think I fail at this a lot. But the tip I really loved is instead of saying, do you like working at Google, where someone can be like, yes, and then, you know, there's nothing left, you could say, well, what's it like to work at Google? Do you, you know, what do you think? And that's a much longer answer. And I think my brain, when I'm in work mode, is always in the, let's be efficient, let's be efficient. But when it comes to building relationships, the goal isn't to get to the end result as fast as possible. It's to build the relationship. So that's one tip that I really liked. And then I'll ask you this one. This is where I I feel like I fail. I am terrible at just leaving a conversation uh, in, in a professional setting where, you know, I've been there for, I'm trying to meet 10 people. I've only got a couple hours. You have any tips what to do when you're 15 minutes in, you've made that relationship, you've kind of set up maybe a next step and you're trying to get around the room and and meet more people. (laughs) Yeah. So first of all, I think it can be helpful to recognize that often the other person is secretly thinking the same thing. They're thinking, I've loved this conversation, but I could really use a refill on my drink. Or, you know, I'd like to go chat with some others. So first of all, if you are in an in-person setting, I like to purposefully have as much as possible a half-empty drink or a nearly empty food plate so I can use that as an excuse. It's a universal human excuse. Oh, Chris, it's been great catching up, but I actually am going to go get a refill, but I'll catch you later. Or, you know, I think I'm going to go try more of that guacamole. I don't know. I love food. I'm very food motivated. I find that people tend to react really well. If there's no food or drinks or you have a full drink, that's not an option. I think sometimes you can just be really kind but direct. Maybe they've told you about something, let's say a a work accomplishment, you know, wow, that's that's really incredible. You must be really proud. Well, I'd love to hear more about that. I actually need to walk around the room quickly and there's a few people I need to catch up with, but, but let's swap information and maybe we can follow up later on. 
or I think sometimes just saying um, that I've really loved talking to you, but uh, would love to continue this later. And as much as it can be awkward to do, often the other person is grateful. And in fact, if I'm speaking with someone who's much more important than me, for example, a speaker at a conference or, you know, when I've met, you know, various tech celebrities, I always make a point of ending the conversation first because no one ever does it with them. And it's such a power move to be talking to, you know, Elon Musk and be like, well, it was amazing getting to meet you, but I'm going to go grab another drink, but hopefully see you around. <laughs> People, I, I find it's actually, whatever the situation, it can be such a great way of, of acknowledging the other person's time um, and the fact that they likely have a long agenda. If the conversation is meant to continue, you can find each other later at the event or in a separate follow-on. Yeah. Yeah. And those follow-ons, I, I, I tend to say, try to come up with some next step if you want to meet this person, as opposed to waiting people are always more willing to commit to things in person. So if you're trying to get someone to introduce you to some person at their company or a friend of theirs, just ask. Because if you wait till you send an email, it's so easy for someone to say no. But if you say, hey, would you be willing to introduce me to this person? People are really, really uncomfortable saying no in person. So that's also something I always suggest in person. Yes, and definitely you just hit on, I think, the importance of following up, saying, you know, the next day, sometimes even that that same day, sending a quick email, so great to talk to you, you know, as we discussed, I'd love to XYZ, uh, putting it in writing, getting that quick follow up. Often I find I'll need to send a second note a few days later because many people get backlogged on email right after they speak or when they're at an event. But that's okay. I think it's just helpful to really be fairly quick with that follow up while things are still fresh. And ideally, while they're still feeling the enthusiasm of the human connection of the conversation that you two had. So don't follow any dating rules. Don't wait seven days. Just follow up quick. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, there are many parallels between dating and professional connections, but I absolutely think that uh, this is not one you don't want to play too hard to get, especially if you're in the position of looking to build your network, looking to meet new people. You know, people often respond very favorably to the kind of clearly expressed intention that you admire their career or you'd like to get to know them better or learn from them or something like that. So it's not a time to beat around the bush. Yeah, totally. So I want to, before we jump into kind of actually finding opportunities that could be interesting, there's a part of the book that talks about building your personal brand. And when I hear someone talk about building their personal brand, my immediate reaction is, oh, I've got to go become a, a YouTube influencer and I have to start, you know, creating video content every day and posting on social media. Is it really about all of that? Or does it have to be about all that? No, it does not. But I love that because you're exactly right that many people have this idea that having a personal brand is synonymous with being an influencer or spending hours every week crafting an online persona. The fact is, you have a personal brand, whether you've thought about it or not. Everyone does. Your personal brand is how people talk about you when you're not in the room. And it's sometimes uncomfortable to think about that, but every single one of us is referred to or discussed in various casual ways by colleagues, by bosses, by others when we're not there. And so I like to think about it, first of all, as this question, what do you want to be known for? So what are the attributes, the adjectives, and the accomplishments that you want people to think of when they say your name? 
And, you know, if you want to think about building a personal brand, again, this doesn't have to be an arduous process, but I think it is really, really important in today's world because of how interconnected we are on social media, because of the way that your reputation is going to precede you in so many different aspects of your professional career and frankly, your personal life as well. And so again, just like I talked about, the beginning of a job search is often that period of self-reflection or self-discovery. I think that a good personal brand exploration starts the same way. Just thinking, what do I want to be known for? If you have the time, I love to recommend that you ask colleagues, bosses, friends, what do you think I'm known for? What do you think are some of the adjectives people would use to describe me? What are some of my strengths? And then ideally think about a few key words or phrases that are really important. Maybe it's around your creativity. Maybe it's your, you know, consistency and dependability. Um, maybe it's your financial acumen, your sort of, you know, facility with numbers, like whatever it is, just getting really clear about how you want to be known is step one. And then thinking about how you consistently communicate that, you know, a very baseline place is your social profiles, your LinkedIn, your Twitter, your Instagram, if you have them. I think it's important also to know that that you should have some consistency, but that doesn't mean sameness. So every profile shouldn't look exactly the same because, um, you know, because they're not the same platforms, right? If I showed up exactly the same way on Instagram that I do on LinkedIn, one of those would be a really awkward fit. But I should clearly seem like the same person with some of the same key values. So whether that's authenticity, you know, my interest in the future of work and talent, just really being deliberate and specific, making sure that you have a reasonably good photo of yourself on each platform. I think that can be very helpful. And then I would really recommend that people consider a personal website. Now, of course, it depends on what you do. It's not as relevant for every career field, but it really, you can think of it as a piece of real estate on the internet where you can say exactly what you want about who you are and what you're good at just gives you a little bit more space to talk about key accomplishments, share examples of your work if it's digitally available, uh, perhaps include video clips or, again, just a bit of additional text and give people a way to get in contact with you that is not just uh, a Twitter DM or LinkedIn in-mail. So we have a lot of tips on the Muse for specifically how to think about building a personal website, but I think that they can be really, really powerful and they're often underused. And also, again, if you're reaching out to industry influencers or others to set up networking events, informational interviews, being able to link to a few key places online that very clearly and concisely give a sense of, again, who you are, what you stand for, what you're known for is really important if you want people to respond to your email. So is it your LinkedIn profile that is that kind of key best thing? Is it a personal website? Maybe if you're a creative, it's your TikTok. Whatever it is, just really know that you're crafting it so that someone gets as accurate an impression of you as possible in a fairly short amount of time and know that people are going to be Googling you all the time for professional opportunities, for personal opportunities. So the more, again, that you can be intentional about how you show up online, the better. Yeah, I think sometimes people think they have to go write blog posts and create content to, to manage their brand. But for the longest time, I had my name.com and it was literally just a website that had some social links and three sentences about me in a photo. <laughs> and, you know, the crazy thing was if you search for my name now, that's one of the things that pops up. It's this website that didn't have a lot of information on it, but just gave people uh, a very easy way to find 
you and and links and your email address and that kind of stuff. Which comes up with another question. You know, maybe 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been a thing. But nowadays, I think with so many social platforms and employers, you know, Googling employees, is it now okay to have pictures of of yourself just having a good time on the internet? And (laughs) are all employers okay with that? Or are certain industries a little turned off by that? Or what's the latest policy on what you post on Instagram or Twitter? Yeah. So I love that you asked this because it is a constantly changing answer as sort of society adapts to the proliferation of images and video and information on social. I would say, first of all, that most employers recognize that you and me, like we're humans. We have fun. We see friends. We socialize. We might drink an alcoholic beverage. So I think it's important to use your judgment for the majority of industries and the majority of employers. Casual photos of someone drinking or having fun on a social platform are not going to be a problem at all. That said, there's a few exceptions and certain industries are uh, more, more strict. And I can talk about that in a second. But, you know, if you had a photo of yourself doing a keg stand or some sort of like extreme drinking event, I'd probably recommend if you're thinking about changing jobs that you consider taking it down or at least removing your name. If you have some very incendiary or controversial political views, that can be another thing that can hamper you in a job search. Now, some people decide this is me. And I don't want to be hired by someone who has a problem with anything I say or do online. And that is an acceptable approach. But if you don't feel that way, if you want to think about this as, you know, that's my personal life, but I don't want it to interfere with my job, then I often recommend do a Google search on yourself, look at your social profiles and just, you know, think about are there things that might that might really surprise someone. Now, a few industries, uh, financial services can be a bit more particular when it comes to uh, social events on social media, things like client service or therapists where it's one-on-one. Again, it's it's very complicated because I, you still have, in some cases, a generation that didn't grow up with their lives online judging a generation that did. So that adds some complexity because it's very easy to throw stones about social media if you know Facebook and Instagram didn't come around until you were in your mid to late 30s. But at the same time, I think by and large, hiring managers are much more relaxed about this type of thing than they were in the past. And they're not going to begrudge someone who's, you know, having a good time, enjoying themselves, unless it sort of crosses a line that I would say is, is again, you know, pretty extreme drinking, uh, very controversial statements. That is probably where I would, I would suggest, like, just unless you really feel committed to it. Just take your name off it, you know, make it make it a little bit less because job searching is already hard enough. And do you really want to worry? Did I not get that interview because of how I answered that second question or because they saw this diatribe that I went on? And again, I find that personally, I like to keep the focus on my professional skills and abilities and not so much on on things that might be controversial. Totally agree. One tip is if you're trying to Google yourself, make sure you do it from an incognito window. Because sometimes you'll search and and the results will be different than if someone else was. Yes, that is an important um, one, by the way. And I tend to say, you know, go two to three pages potentially into your results. You don't necessarily need to go 10. If somebody's 10 pages deep on your results, say they're really doing a forensic audit. You can if you're concerned about what's there. But most employers are looking at the first page of Google, maybe the first two very rarely the third. It's it's unusual in my experience that someone will go any deeper than that. 
So that's that's a lot about how you can prepare before you're kind of ready for this. This is stuff you can do when you're not even looking for a job, when you have more free time. But if you start thinking about what you want to do next and you have a few ideas, what do you think is the the right approach today in this kind of modern workplace to find opportunities? I like to recommend um, a three-pronged approach because I think it's helpful to have a few different irons in the fire when you're thinking about changing a job. So uh, first and foremost, I do think the use of specialized job sites. Uh, obviously, I run one, themuse.com, so I'm not unbiased here, but focused sites like the Muse that give you access to you know, a really diverse set of offerings that let you see jobs. You know, On our site, for example, you can search for jobs by, do they have you know, maternity or paternity leave? Do they offer tuition reimbursement? Like, It's a good way to get a broad sense of a lot of opportunities in the market, including things that you may not have heard of. So I think that's one step, and we can talk more about that. Second, is specific company websites and social media. So, you know, are there places that are already on your radar as uh, companies you might want to work for? Follow them on social. Look to see if they have job search specific social channels. For example, I think NPR has at NPR jobs on Twitter, just, just about working at NPR. A lot of companies have kind of focused social media handles just on both their employee experience and the roles that they're hiring for. Looking on the company websites and understanding, is there a talent pool to sign up for? Because some companies actually end up searching internal talent pools or lists of people who have expressed interest in working at that company before they post roles externally. So having a short list of companies that you're interested in, getting on their radar, definitely helpful. And then finally, um, your network. And you know, we talked about this from the perspective of building your network, uh, the perspective of having informational interviews, but it's very helpful, regardless of where you are in your career, to tap your network for potential job opportunities. One thing I like to do is a group email, because I think that an individual email one-on-one can be great uh, for people you know really well, but for people who you're less close to, sometimes people don't know how to handle it if, if they don't personally feel comfortable or know you well enough to help. So I like sometimes sending a BCC email to a small group of people that says, you know, friends, if you're on this list, it's because I really value your professional opinion and I wanted to you know, enlist your help in my upcoming job search. This is a really great opportunity to be very clear about that personal brand, those personal brand attributes and adjectives that we talked about before. So you want to concisely explain what it is that you're very good at, what it is that you're looking for, and how your network can help. So, you know, I am a healthcare administrator with X years of experience. I focus on this. My peers and previous managers would say that I excel at this. That, by the way, is one of my favorite tips in interviewing as well as in outreach emails is, and again, it has to be honest because many of these people may know or talk to your peers and former managers, and you don't want to be caught in any sort of falsehood. But to, for things that are true, for things that you hear often, rather than saying, you know, I am great at this, <laughs> people think I am this, being able to say colleagues and managers frequently describe me as XYZ, listing out some of those adjectives or talking about some of your accomplishments that others would verify is helpful. And then I would say, give your network specific ways that they can help. I like to keep the body of the email short and sweet and say, you know, read on below my signature for a list of example companies I'm interested in and more details. But really, you can, you know, this is an opportunity to 
ask for introductions at specific dream employers, list out some of the types of jobs you're looking for. And this can be a really, really effective tool if used well. But I would say generally you want to send maybe one of these uh, per person per job search. So it can be less useful if you're following up with people again and again and again. Hey, help me. Because you never want your network to feel like you're pushing the responsibility of you getting a job on them. Yeah. And and I found when you're sending these emails, sometimes I'll go as far as to say, hey, if you want to introduce me to someone, here is a blurb of text at the bottom of the email yes. that says, hey, I want to introduce you to Chris. He's looking for this. You know, here's a little blurb of his background. Try to make it as easy as possible for the person that wants to help because they're already going to be doing work for you. And if you can make it less work, they're just more likely to help. Yes, I, I completely agree. I love that. When people reach out to me and say, Catherine... I'm looking for X, you know, who can you introduce me to? That's sometimes a much harder question to answer than when someone's like, Catherine, I'm looking for this. I noticed in your network, you're connected to these seven people. Who are you comfortable passing me on? Can I write a blurb for you to use? You know, just make it as easy for them as possible because most people you're asking are really busy. Generally, you know, we have hundreds of undone tasks on our to-do list. And so the more that you help someone help you, the more likely they are to do it. Yeah. You know those stories about your mom's life that you never get tired of hearing? Sometimes they're funny, sometimes more sentimental, and sometimes they just highlight how much you have in common. Like for me, it's when my mom talks about programming mainframe computers in COBOL before I was even born. So for this Mother's Day, I have to tell you about a perfect gift to help you capture and preserve all those amazing stories and memories for years to come. It's called StoryWorth. I've given it as a gift multiple times. It's awesome, and they are also one of our sponsors today. Here's how it works. Every week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick, like what's the bravest thing you've ever done or where's the farthest you've ever traveled, and they just need to reply to that email with a story, long or short, doesn't matter. Then, after a year, StoryWorth compiles all those stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that I am excited we now have a few of in our family, and they'll last for generations. StoryWorth really is an amazing gift, which is probably why they've been trusted with millions of stories from customers over the past decade. So, give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to allthehacks.com slash storyworth. That's allthehacks.com slash storyworth to save $10 on your first purchase. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. So I want to talk about an amazing resource, the NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast, where every week, NerdWallet's in-house experts and financial journalists set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your money. The nerds have already helped me get smarter about saving money on groceries, avoiding some of the latest financial scams, and boosting my credit score since it's actually been going a little bit up and a little bit more down lately as I've been taking advantage of a few recent credit card offers. They also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life so you'll get the clarity you need to make smart decisions with confidence. Weekly financial check-ins with smart money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I just want to thank you quick for listening to and supporting the show. 
Your support is what keeps this show going. To get all of the URLs, codes, deals, and discounts from our partners, you can go to allthehacks.com slash deals. So please consider supporting those who support us. And, and sometimes if I didn't want to bother people in my network for something or I found that I'm making too many requests, I'll just find the email address of the person I'm trying to be introduced to. And I won't say that this person has endorsed this introduction, but I'll mention in the email, I'm like, hey, looks like we're both connected to Catherine. That's great. It's better than a cold email, but not as good as a warm intro, but it's somewhere in the middle. So you you can do that even if someone doesn't have the time to help out. Yes. And, and again, you brought up a really great point, which is people are more likely to answer you or to help you if you have common points of interest or people in common. So whether it's someone you both know, a school you both went to, even an interest you both had. When I was telling the story earlier about how I got the news.com URL, one of the things I did when I was researching the gentleman who had it is realize that he had worked in uh, global health in Newfoundland and I had worked in global health in East Africa. And there were some interesting parallels between this past experience he had, this past experience I had. And so given that I didn't have any connections to him, when I reached out, I was able to write my email in a way that highlighted some of the shared things that we seemed to care about from our online profile. So like you said, it's less good than a warm intro from someone who knows and loves and respects you both, but much better than a cold email. I mean, I get at least 10 emails a week. Hi, Catherine, can I pick your brain? But, you know, they're all fighting with each other for a very limited amount of brain space. And the ones that have warm connections or shared points of interest or experience are much more likely to get answered. Yeah. And if we go through the arc of this process, you've figured out how to get in touch with people, you've started to figure out what you care about, maybe you've identified a few companies. Obviously, if there is a a job posting that you're qualified for and that you're excited about, you know, you could apply online. I I would treat that personally as the last resort to being able to find someone at the company that could refer you. What about when there's not a job posted? If you found a company and you're like, I'm very excited to work here, but there's not something on their careers page or listed anywhere, what do you tell people to do? Yeah, absolutely. That happens frequently, by the way. Most companies, especially small companies, want to hear from you directly. Larger companies, it can be a bit more complicated because they often... Uh, are so deluged by applicants that they set up guardrails and blockages. But I would say, first of all, look to see, again, like we were saying, do you have anyone in your network who works at this company or is connected to someone who works at this company? Can you get connected to someone who you can say, I'm really interested in what your company does. I'm excited about working for you. Are there opportunities? You know, here's what I'm good at. For larger companies, they sometimes have what's called a talent network, which I mentioned earlier, where you can send in a general application, which uh, essentially describes who you are, what you're good at, uh, what you're sort of known for and your skills are, and then stays in their database. But I find that if you can go in through someone directly, that's always the best move. But actually, I would say, and, and this sort of... I maybe push back a little bit on the point you said before. I think sometimes doing more than one thing is best. So even if you know someone, I would often tell people apply to the talent network as well because, you know, worst case, you're just duplicating your efforts. Best case, it's another way in, another point of contact. Similarly, when you think about online job sites, you know, they get a bad rap because 
like Indeed is the biggest one, right? Our data right now from a bunch of our customers shows that on average, employers are making about one hire for every 600 applicants from Indeed. So no wonder it feels like it's just going into a black hole. But for you know a lot of focus sites like the Muse, the ratio is like one to 100 or one to 200. It still means there's a lot of competition. It's still best if you have a human intro or a connection. But even you know if somebody reaches out to me, through a referral, oh, you know, Chris is great at this. Like, you know, you you guys should talk to him for that role you're hiring for. I often will still ask the person to apply as well through our online posting so that they're in our systems. And I think I often say like, you can't go wrong by doing a mix of both, sometimes at the same company. Because I think the latest statistics I've heard are that 56% of all jobs are filled today through online job postings. So while I would always recommend that people do their best to find the connection, do the informational interview, you know, network your way in, it is certainly a, a higher likelihood way of success. There are a lot of jobs that get filled from online pools. And so I think it's helpful to think about both because particularly for people that don't have as strong of a network, I think that you can, sometimes people despair. They're like, I'll never get the job if I don't have a connection. And that's actually not true. Again, if you have an opportunity to make a connection, do it. And when you get further along in your career, the, the closer you are to an executive or a senior role, the more important connections become. The earlier you are in your career, the more jobs uh, tend to get filled through online portals, company websites, et cetera, partially because of just the volume of roles being hired. But I, I think that being really thoughtful about multiple channels is helpful. And again, you will ultimately, if you especially are excited about particular opportunities, you want to maximize your chance of success. Yeah. And if there's no job posting, I wouldn't be afraid to just reach out. I know there was a company I really wanted to work at at one point called Simple Geo, and there was no job opening. And I just decided that this is the company I want to work at. And instead of applying to 20 jobs, I overcommitted to this. And I emailed everyone I knew that knew the company. Uh, finally, someone said they'd forward an email to one of the founders. And I said, hey, I really want to work at your company. Here's what I do. Can I give you a presentation on why you should consider talking to me? And they gave me 15 minutes and I gave a presentation to one of the founders of the company and, and kind of convinced them that they should consider hiring me. They ended up hiring me to do a freelance project that eventually became a job. But I think people maybe don't always realize how valuable passion for the company is as an attribute of a candidate. And when I'm looking to hire people at Wealthfront, when I see people email me and I can just tell that they're excited about the product, they're excited about working here, they've done their homework, it bubbles them up to the top of the list. Not that I would hire them over a more qualified candidate, but I would definitely want to talk to them knowing that they're so excited. And sometimes that happens for roles that we know we're going to hire for in the future, but we, we don't have listed. So if you're really, really excited about a company, I wouldn't let the fact that there's not an opening now dissuade you from reaching out and, and applying for a job that doesn't exist. Yes. Because I think that, you know, again, when you're in the job search seat, you can be really fixated on like, how am I going to convince, you know, the right company to hire me? But it's helpful to remember that companies are sitting there thinking, wow, how are we going to get the right people for all this work that we have to do? And if you can show up to a company and demonstrate that you might be the right person and that you have that passion and that commitment, as you said, they're in some cases very incentivized to create a role for you, 
to accelerate a role that maybe they'd been planning to hire for in two or three months, but suddenly a great candidate shows up, you know, who wouldn't want to just fill the role if they have the budget now to do so. So I couldn't agree more. And actually I was, I was trying to flip through the pages of my book to find this specific email that I got early on in the muse. I had been thinking about hiring someone in marketing. I'd actually been talking to a woman that I thought was interesting. And right when it started to fall through and, and it seemed like maybe she wasn't actually going to be the right fit. I got a cold email from someone who had seen me speak at a conference and essentially said, I love your company. I believe in the mission. I want to be part of it. Exactly like you said, here's here's who I am. Here's what I'm good at. You know, if you ever need help, if you ever need consulting, if I can ever be of assistance, if there's ever a role, like I am on board, I want this. And I responded, you know, a day or so later. And I was like, actually thinking about hiring a marketer. And that guy, Elliot, worked for the Muse for years after that. And it was such a core part of our early growth. And it's all because, like you said, we didn't have a role posted, but he reached out. I've, I've hired pl- multiple people for that. I've done that myself. Big fan of that approach. So uh, you, you wrote a whole book about this. We could spend another hour on interviewing and negotiating. So I'll ask a few tactical questions just to kind of fly through things. Is there an interview question you think even the most senior candidates always get wrong? <laughs> well, everybody struggles with tell me about your biggest weakness because it can be such a hard and vulnerable thing to cop to your true biggest weakness. Frankly, some people don't know it. And I would say that's the biggest problem is when people are not self-aware enough to know their biggest weakness. I think it is important to be honest because good interviewers are looking for self-awareness. At the same time, recognize that if your biggest weakness overlaps with one of the most important criteria for doing this job well, you will probably not get the job. But frankly, you probably shouldn't get that job. So I think that there's a way to answer that question that can focus on an area that's a known weakness, what you've done to mitigate it, why you're committed to improving it, and ideally have it be something that's a true weakness that is not a core need for the role you're interviewing for, because that can make it very, very hard for an interviewer to feel comfortable giving you the job. I've been surprised how often candidates, even senior candidates, will not do a good job of answering why do you want to work here or what attracted you to this company. If the answer feels trite, if it feels very surface level, it's so much less compelling than someone who is immediately clear why this company is so exciting for them. It's kind of like we were joking before about areas where job search is not similar to dating. This is one where it is very similar. People don't want to date someone who just wants a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That's not very appealing. You know, you want someone who's specifically interested in you. And uh, for many interviewers, it's exactly the same. They want the candidate to have done deep research and to really clearly be able to articulate why this company, why this role. So that's another one. I mean... Honestly, interviewing is tricky. It's one of the things we have, I would guess, probably 3,000 interviewing articles on themuse.com. But partially, it's, you know, we've got articles for different functional areas, different types of questions, different seniorities. It is a challenge. And I think, you know, I, I do recommend people practice a bit if you haven't interviewed in a while just to get some of the kinks out. But at the same time, the interviewer generally wants to find someone great. They want you to do well. So I think that's a, an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, we will link to some of these articles uh, in the show notes for people looking for them. Okay, few last quick things. When people find that job, do you think negotiating is something that 
people should be doing more of? Yes, I do. Although I think you can take cues from the employer on which of the many different areas to negotiate uh, are best. So first of all, most of the time when an employer gives an initial offer, it is negotiable unless they very explicitly say that this is, for example, the same offer we give every single person in this role. Or um, if you're being hired for a role that's one of a number of identical things, be it customer service reps, consultants at uh, a large consulting firm, et cetera, sometimes there's low flexibility. But for most companies, most roles, imagine there's at least 5 to 10% flexibility in the first salary number that you're offered. And I think it generally doesn't hurt to say, first of all, thank you so much for the offer. I'm very excited about the company, but I just need to uh, take a, a day or two to consider a few things. You know, Can I come back to you? Sometimes that's helpful for people who are not as comfortable negotiating as immediately going into uh, a negotiation. And it lets you really sit back and think, what do I want to ask for? How do I want to ask for it? And then I often recommend that people lay out a few different things. So first of all, uh, what's your desired salary range? You can do some research on various online platforms to understand what uh, other companies might be paying for this role. Know that different platforms do have very different ranges. We find that when we benchmark that certain platforms are consistently higher than others in terms of their uh, ideal or their kind of target salary ranges. So I'd suggest check out a few. But I think it is very common and often expected that you go back to the hiring manager. Again, I always recommend that you first start by really reiterating how appreciative or excited you are. You know, you want the conversation to feel like you're two future great collaborators working in unison towards the ideal outcome, which is that you join the company and everyone's happy. So, you know, thank you so much. I really appreciated this. I, I wanted to to come back and talk about salary. I'd be really excited to accept this role if you could get in the range of X. Or based on my research, I've seen benchmarks for this role that are in a range of why. Do you think that's something you can do? The more that you can make it a collaborative process and less like an ultimative, the more likely it is to start the relationship off on the right foot. It's also helpful to understand internally, is this a question of, I would take this role no matter what, and I just want to try and negotiate for a slightly higher base, which I absolutely would encourage you to do. Or is this, I would only take this role if they can meet certain criteria? Knowing that internally helps you frame your negotiation and it also minimizes unpleasant surprises if you do end up unintentionally communicating that you absolutely must have a company get to a certain number to say yes, and then they don't get there and they're like, okay, sorry, we offered the job to someone else and you're heartbroken. So I think it's important to advocate for yourself, but also understand what is the outcome you're looking for. It's also important to remember, it's not just salary. People think negotiation salary, and yes, that's very important, and I would absolutely start there. But you can also negotiate other things. One executive that I know negotiated a $10,000 conference budget as part of her compensation because the company was unable to go too much higher on her base comp because they didn't want her to be out of range with other execs, but they gave her a $10,000 budget to uh, have travel, hotels, and conference fees, which she used to go to incredible conferences all over the world. She was also able to, I believe, negotiate student loan payment reimbursement and a number of other bells and whistles that were separate from base comp. Companies sometimes are also more willing to give you bonus comp instead of base. So if Let's say you want 20K higher, they come back that they can't do more than 10. 
it's you know it's often acceptable to ask could you add five to ten thousand dollars to my end of your bonus or even your signing bonus yes absolutely that's a great point signing bonus relocation bonus sometimes companies just want to be able to say that everyone in this role is between x and y thousand dollars of base but if they really want you they're motivated to find a way to make to make things work the one thing i would say that I, i would also just caution people to avoid is sometimes you can sour an employer if they feel like it's a And one more thing situation. So I think it's helpful if you say, hey, I'm really excited about this, but I just need you to get to this number. If they come back and get to that number, they're expecting that you're going to say, ideally, yes. Or maybe you might say, I ended up going with another opportunity. That's fine. But I wouldn't at that point come back and be like, thanks for giving me what I asked. And one more thing, especially if you do that two or three times, that's when I've seen sometimes companies sour on a candidate if they feel like the person is not being straightforward and direct in their negotiating. And and I would just double down that if you're negotiating with your future boss, that I would I would just emphasize that point even more because if you're negotiating with a recruiter, you might not engage with them regularly. But if you're negotiating with your boss, building a relationship that will hopefully last for a while. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I would I'd plus a hundred to that. Ideally, this is a long-term relationship where they are going to be a huge advocate and supporter of yours. And so again, making it feel during the negotiation, like you're on the same side of the table, trying to mutually get to a great goal is going to be much better for that relationship than setting something up that feels adversarial. Yeah. Well, so part three of your book, which we won't get into at all, is all about charting your course through the workplace after you're working there. And I had intended to try to get to a bunch of questions about communicating with people, (laughs) getting raises and promotions, but I'll just have to say, check out the book or we'll have you back another time. But it wouldn't be all the hacks if we didn't end asking for your favorite kind of work, life, productivity hacks. There are a few in the book, but I'd love to hear what your favorites are. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm a huge lover of pocket to save articles that I want to read later. My favorite job search hack. And actually, I would say this this can apply to promotions as well, which I know we're not getting into in depth, but I think it can be really useful to print out some job descriptions for a role you'd like to have in one to three years, and then use two highlighters, one to highlight the skills you have today, and one to highlight the skills or experiences that you'd like to acquire in the next one to three years so that you can be a good fit for those roles. It's a great way of being really intentional about where you are in your career, what you have today versus where you want to go. And then you can use that to raise your hand at work for opportunities or offer in some cases to take on outside projects that might really well position you for those titles you know you're going to be going after in one to three years. So that's a good muse hack. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was awesome. I really appreciate your time. And where can people find you and everything you're working on online. So the Muse website is just themuse.com. That is the biggest repository of career advice articles, insight into companies and their values and cultures, job search. For me, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Cayman, Instagram at Kminshu. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get the exact same handle. Um, you can stalk me on LinkedIn, just Catherine Minshu. And yeah, I love hearing from people. And uh, please follow the Muse check me out and hopefully we'll do another one of these sometime soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much for being here. Awesome. Thank you. This was a ton of fun. That was so much fun. I hope that even if you're not looking to change jobs right now, you learned something valuable. If you have any suggestions for a guest or a topic in a future show, please let me know. 
And if you have a minute, I would really appreciate a few seconds of your time to give a vote to all the hacks for an award in the best new personal finance podcast category. You can do it very quickly at allthehacks.com slash vote. Finally, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to record a special listener mailbag episode soon. So please share any questions for me or your favorite hacks by emailing chris at allthehacks.com or I'm at Hutchins on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week.